how do you know if you really believe what you say you believe? Now, let me say that again, just because it, it can sound a little bit confusing. How do you know if you really believe what you say you believe? And the assumption behind that question is that we don't always be believe what we profess to believe. So, for example, many people would line up for a trust fall and say that they trust the person who's going to catch them. If you know that what a trust fall is, you know, one person stands completely straight, someone stands behind them, and then they begin, the person in front begins to fall backwards, trusting the person behind them to catch them. How many of you have seen this and watched as someone crumbles because they don't trust the person behind them? Well, what does that reveal? That reveals that although they say they trust them, the person standing behind them, they don't actually trust them. Our actions reveal what we truly believe. We live out our theology. So we proclaim a lot of different ideas concerning God. But if you want to know if you really believe those ideas, look towards your actions. So, for example, we say that we believe in this church, we'd say we believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient word of God, meaning that it is inspired, God inspired human hands to write it. It is inerrant, meaning it is free from mistakes, and it is sufficient for our lives, for godly living. And yet, how often do we rebel against the words of Scripture? How often do we twist them to fit our own agendas and our own culture instead of submitting to them? Another example would be we say that we trust God. Yes, I completely trust God. I understand that he is sovereign. I understand that he can work out all things together for my good. So no matter how bad things get, God can work it out for my good. And yet when the slightest problem arises, we begin to have anxiety, and we can't sleep at night, and we have, we're irritable, and we're angry. What does that reveal? It reveals that although we profess trusting God, maybe we don't really trust him. I think about uh, the story of the man with a demonic son in Mark 9. And he comes to Jesus, and he's looking to be healed. Actually, the, the disciples try to cast the demon out, and they can't do it. So they bring the son to Jesus, and the man, desperate to see his son free of this demonic possession, says to Jesus, can you free him? And Jesus' response is, if you believe, I can. Now, some people take that and kind of twist it to mean that it, it's dependent on the, on the guy's faith. So if he just has stronger faith, then Jesus will do the work for him. And it's not about how strong of faith that guy has. It's about whether or not he truly believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus is cutting to a point. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you actually trust him? I love the man's response, and I think the man's response sums up most of Christians' response. I want to believe, help my unbelief. 
How often do we struggle with this? This is a common theme through us all. I want to believe, help my unbelief. So, so often we struggle and our actions we reveal what we really believe, and yet we say, no, but that's not what I want to believe. So when, when crisis hits, we say that we trust God, when crisis hits and we have anxiety, it's revealing what we really believe, and yet almost every single one of us would say, but I don't want to believe like that. I want to believe and, t- and totally trust God. How do we get to the point where we're really living out our professed faith? How do we get to the point where we really believe what we profess to believe? That's the question that we're going to study today as we look at Psalm 103. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 103. We're getting close to the end of book four. Psalms is, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. Psalm 103, 4, 5, and 6 make the closing of, a, of the book 4 of Psalm, and they all have to do with praising God. So book 4 is going to close out with four different chapters on reasons to praise God. So Psalm 103 of David, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our inequities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his work, or do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. So this psalm, as we enter the closing of book four, the psalm starts off, and the psalms that we'll 
uh, encourage us to praise God starts off with bless the Lord. Now, sometimes the word bless in the Old Testament means to invoke divine favor. Well, that would be kind of silly to think of, hey, God, I want to invoke divine favor upon you. That's not exactly what this bless means. This bless means to use or to speak words of excellence. So David is encouraging us to use words or speak words of excellence to God. That's what he's encouraging us to do. That We can sum that up with praise, to praise God, right? To, to bless him, to speak words of excellence would be to praise God. This is an encouragement for us to worship together, to come and sing praises to God, and to use words of excellence describing who God is. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, the soul is, an inner, is the inner self. It's the, it's the inner thought, the inner dialogue of our person. So praising God, although can, can take the form of coming together and externally praising God, here the encouragement is to, uh, to be in our inner self. Our praise, our speaking excellence of God should develop from the heart. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just showing up to church together and singing the lyrics that are projected up here, but it should be something that is developed from our heart, from the core of ourselves, that we should be speaking words of excellence. So when you have inner dialogue about who God is, do you speak words of excellence about God? Do you speak words of rebellion? Maybe it's just neutral words, and you don't even think about God other than when we come together. Here, the encouragement is to, to have that inner dialogue, that inner self, speaking words of excellence about God. And then he takes it one step further. All that is within me. So not just the inner self, not just that inner dialogue, but every part of you, every fiber, every being of you, all the way down to your DNA, should be speaking excellence of who God is. All parts of us should be speaking words of excellence, blessing his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So here he's just repeating this for emphasis. Do you think that praising God might be important? I think we're seeing a theme right off the bat. I think this is one of the major ways that we learn how to live out what we profess. If we are not speaking words of excellence about God in all aspects of our lives, in all fibers of our being, we will never truly live out the theology that we profess. It is real easy to profess that God is eternal and that he is a loving savior and that he is trustworthy and that he is sovereign. It's another thing to praise God as if he is that. It's another thing to speak words of excellence as if he is that all the time in all parts of our being. One of the reasons why we live a double life or a life maybe that we don't necessarily want to live why we cry out, I want to believe, help my unbelief, is that we don't praise God. Worshiping God, praising God, speaking words of excellence in our inner being and to one another is one of the ways that we live out what we profess to believe. So when crisis comes, it becomes automatic. 
When crisis hits you, it's not like, oh no, it's time to question who God is. It is so ingrained in every fiber of our being that we say, you know what, this is a horrible thing. And yet I trust God with it. So that's the theme that's going to hit us over and over again is speaking words of excellence about God. It actually transforms how we think and how we feel. It is so vital to growing in Christian maturity, praising God. It is an important part of our life. And then he gives us another encouragement. Bless the Lord all my soul and forget not all his benefits. So to forget means to uh, no longer hold it against someone. If someone has sinned against you and you forgive them, you no longer hold that sin against them. Now just a little bit of personal application on this forgive, which I think it's really important. I think Christians often misunderstand, and our culture kind of almost tries to force us into misunderstanding forgiveness because we as Christians are called to forgive someone. And it is very true. And we need to live out forgiveness. Without someone even asking for forgiveness, we need to forgive. So if someone has sinned against you and maybe they haven't even asked for forgiveness, maybe they haven't apologized, maybe they're still sinning against you, you are called to forgive them, to not hold that sin against them anymore. But here's the mistake we often make, is that we often confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. We think forgiveness means that the relationship needs to be restored like like no sin had ever been committed. And that is false. Forgiveness is not holding that sin against them any longer, but that doesn't mean that you need to walk with them as if they had never sinned against you. There cannot be reconciliation. without repentance. So if someone has, has sinned against you, forgive them. Don't hold that sin against them any longer. But that doesn't mean that you should be totally reconciled back to them. Without repentance, without them coming forward, confessing the sin to you, and truly having a heart change, that means that you can actually cut that relationship off. Now, you don't hold it against them. You don't bring it back up every day. You don't every day go bad-mouthing that person to everyone you know. That's not forgiveness. But it does mean that you can say, I forgive you. I'm not holding it against you anymore. But I'm not going to let the abuse continue. I think we need to talk about that more in Christian circles. Because we've gotten this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation so wrong. Reconciliation cannot happen without repentance. So that's a side note, in all honesty, because that's not what this is getting at. Uh, (laughs) Who forgives? Meaning God forgives all of your iniquities. Iniquity is evil behavior. Anything that is against God's moral code is an iniquity. We all have done this. We all have rebelled against God. We all have messed up, some of us more than others. But every single one of us has shaken our fist at God at some point in our life and said, God, forget you. 
I want to do things my way. I know you have called me to live this type of life. I know that you have set aside these moral principles that we need to live in. Forget you, God. I'm not doing it anymore. Every single one of us has committed iniquity, has violated God's moral code, and yet here it says that he has, for, he has forgiven us the iniquity. He no longer holds that iniquity against you. That is something to hold to. Forget, who forgives all your iniquity. So, he forgot not all, sorry, and forget not all of his benefits. The, the uh, term benefits here is gemul, and it means accomplishments. What God has accomplished. So we're encouraged here to forget not all of his benefits, to forget not all of his accomplishments. And then he's going to go through and he's going to list them. Uh, we've already kind of hit on forgiving all of your iniquities. Uh, There's two points I think that we need to make with remembering all that he's accomplished. And one is personally. What has God accomplished for you? And he's going he's gonna to outline that in verses 3 through 5. He's going to outline everything that God has accomplished with us. But I think there's a second part of that, and that is remembering all of the things that God has done for us. And not just for us, but all of humanity throughout history. He has called us to remember all that he has done. I think this is a call, and it's a term I'm going to use quite a few times throughout this chapter. I think this is a call to biblical literacy. Meaning God has entered into human history in such a way that he has recorded it and written it down for generation after generation to come to remember it. And he's calling us here to remember it. So how do we remember it? Through biblical literacy, through reading the Bible. So when I use the term biblical literacy, I'm specifically, I think defining it would be helpful. I think biblical literacy is understanding the meaning of Scripture and applying it to our life. So there's a couple pitfalls when it comes to biblical literacy, and one is people oftentimes want to read meaning into Scripture. And what I mean by that is as we read it, we try to define what the meaning is. And we try to do this in all kinds of ways, and oftentimes it's, it's a good-spirited, good heart. You know, we want to do this with a good purpose. So we want to find, like, Christ in every single Scripture. And so we turn to something like Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is all about how marital sex is a good thing. It's encouraging marital sex. If we try to read Christ into that, we're going to come off with some pretty funky ideas about how it's between Christ and his church. So that's reading meaning, and in, in, we're doing it in such a way that, you know, it's a good-hearted, it's a good intention, but we're twisting Scripture to mean something that it's not. So biblical literacy is trying to pull the meaning from the Scripture. So we study Scripture. We even look at historical context. We look at the grammatical context. What type of genre is this? The genre is going to really impact the way we read it. So going back to Solomon, Song of Solomon, one of the ones that I always like to use as an example. She has 32 white teeth all in a row. Or sorry, 
32 white sheep, not teeth. That's what he's getting at, right? So we look at the genre, and if we think that we need to make it literal, we're going to think, man, he really loves sheep. And he loves the fact that they're white and they're in straight lines. She must be really cool because she can keep all them sheep in straight lines. And that's not what he's getting at. It's the teeth that he's getting at. So we need to understand the, the genre, right? Understanding genre is an important tool to try to find meaning, to pull the meaning from the text. Understanding historical idioms is another great example. When you come across an idiom that just doesn't quite make sense, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, but I thought God was love. How can he hate? Well, it really helps clear things up when you understand that that was a cultural idiom for I choose this person to be the heir and not this person. So if a father was going to, getting ready to pass on his property, he might say something like, this son I have loved, this son I have hated. It doesn't mean that that father actually hates that son. It means that that son isn't getting the inheritance, but this son is. Man, understanding that cultural idiom helps clear up some issues, doesn't it? So that's what we want to do. We want to dive in and we want to try to find the genre. We want to find the cultural context. We want to find the historical context. And we, as we do that, we want to pull the meaning from the text. That's what I mean by biblical literacy. Now, if we're not a biblically literate culture, we run into all kinds of problems. And two of the main problems I think we run into in our culture is number one, we read it alone and not in community, or number two, we let the professional dictate the meaning. So part of the problem when we read it alone, when we read scripture isolated away from community, is we have a tendency to twist scripture to make it fit how we want it to fit our lives. So I have a tendency to twist scripture to fit my theology. Rubbing up against other Christians and reading scripture together with other Christians helps me keep on track with theology. So that's one thing. We need to read it together. When we isolate ourselves, we'll end up going down a bad road theologically. But number two is, too often, we just look to the expert to give us the meaning. Now, if that expert, even if that expert has good intentions, this can lead us down another bad path. One of the biggest problems in the day of Christ is they had, these fair, they had a zeal for wanting to obey the law, right? Man, they had a passion for the law, and they didn't want to accidentally mess up. So instead of like reading the law and applying it and encouraging one another, what they often did was they'd look to the Pharisee and they'd say, how can I do this? How can I accomplish this? Well, the Pharisee wanted to be a good Pharisee and didn't want to mislead anybody. And so he started setting up boundaries. Now these boundaries were extra biblical boundaries. But because they had such a passion, they were going to follow the extra-biblical boundaries, and pretty soon it infiltrated their culture to where these extra-biblical boundaries were on par with Scripture, and they had walked away 
from the true meaning of the text. So for example, keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, how you're going to remember the Sabbath day and how you keep it holy is going to look a little different for me. But people didn't want to have to go through that difficult process, that tension of what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy in my cultural context. And so what they did is they went to the rabbi, to the Pharisee, and they say, what does this mean? And they started developing rules. Well, it means you can only walk so far. It means you can't do this. It means you can't do this. It means you can't do this. It means that you know, a woman might be so tempted to fix her hair if she sees herself in the mirror that you can't even do that. That is too much work. It's not keeping the Sabbath day holy. So before the Sabbath day would even roll around, they'd put blankets over anything that could be a mirror lest a woman see a, a hair out of place and fix it. I won't have that problem. Do you see how not reading scripture ourselves can give us a whole bunch of problems. We need to read it ourselves, and we need to read it in community, and we need to apply it to our lives. And we need not to read meaning into it, but to read it to try to pull the meaning, try to understand the meaning that comes from it. That's biblical literacy, and I believe that forgetting not all of his benefits is a call to biblical literacy. It's a call for us to run through Scripture and remind ourselves and remind each other what God has done and what the Bible actually means. So remember, now we're going to get into these individual benefits. Remember, uh, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. There's a couple problems with this, who heals all your diseases. And uh, I think it doesn't take us long to figure out what the problem is. We still get diseases. In fact, there are many great Christians that have died of disease. And in fact, you will die. It's part of life. I hope I didn't shock anyone here today. You're going to die. So what does it mean that he's healed all of your diseases? I'm still going to die. I'll probably catch a disease one day and die. How does that play out? Well, that's a problem. So a couple of the solutions that some scholars have come up with is that, one, uh, in the context that he's forgiven our iniquities and that he's going to save us from the pit means that this is he's going to that he has healed us from all spiritual diseases. That's one of the solutions some scholars have come up with. I, I, I don't know. You can do with it what you will. The other solution is that it's literally physical diseases, but what he means is that all diseases that are cured or all diseases that are healed are healed by God. Not that God is going to kill all the heal all diseases, but all the diseases that are healed will be healed by God. In all honesty, as I read these solutions, I'm not entirely sure what to do with this. Uh, I've given you a couple options. Uh, I hope that helps, but I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. So I don't think either one of those solutions fully satisfies me, but those were the best solutions that I have read. So I'm going to leave you walking away, hopefully a little bit hungrier to go research that a little bit more. Who redeems your life from the pit? The pit could either be a reference to hell or just a reference to the grave. Once again, we kind of run into the same problem. If he rescues us or redeems us from the grave, well, we still have a problem. We're all going to die. And so that's where people turn to this and look and they say, well, this has got to be hell. The diseases have to be spiritual diseases. Therefore, uh, 
verse 3a all the way through 4a are spiritual problems that he will heal us from. And then he goes on, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And so here he, he not, Christ not only saved us from spiritual death, not only saved us from our iniquities, not only saved us from the pit, but he saves us too. And that's important for us to remember. Oftentimes, we think about how God has forgiven us our sins and he has saved us from hell, and that's great. We need to remember that. But God has done more than just saved you from something. He saved you to something. And that something is, the, is crowning you with steadfast love and mercy. The word mercy here is rahim, and it's based on the word for the womb. And that, I think that's an interesting little tidbit there. When you think of the mercy of God, think of a womb for a baby. What does the womb provide? Everything. That baby is safe and comfortable and taken care of in the womb. God's mercy provides safety, comfort, and takes care of all your needs, just like a mother's womb. So he crowns you. Crowning is to honor someone with a headdress. So he is giving you a headdress to honor you with both his love, his steadfast, committed, always does what's right for you kind of a love, and his mercy. And then he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. So just like an eagle uh, is strong until it dies, God will give us strength until the day we die. This means that no matter how bad things get, no matter how the crisis hits us, we can always live a content life in Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean that my physical strength will always be there, but my strength in God will always be there. 6 through 14, he's going to draw on the Exodus account. So the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who oppressed. So you could just think of uh, as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God eventually worked righteousness for them on his patient timeline. And we talked about that last week, how God is eternal, so he's got an internal perspective. We have a finite perspective. God still works his righteousness in his eternal perspective, not in our finite perspective. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Once again, I think this is another call to biblical literacy. God spoke. He revealed himself in human history, and we have access to know God's character better by studying his word. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So this is describing uh, how God is still merciful and gracious, even in the midst of their idolatry. So next he's going to get into their idolatry, so what happens, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, uh, and the second Moses leaves to, to talk with God, what do they do? They build a golden calf. So they commit idolatry, they begin to worship something that they created. And this is a reminder that he's still merciful, that he's still gracious. He still gives you un, uh, unearned favor, and that he's slow to anger, even in the midst of their, their idolatry. He will not always chide. To chide means to dispute. So although they committed idolatry, his mercy and his grace still were abounding. His steadfast love was still abounding. But he did need to dispute with them. He needed to confront them about their sin. 
That's part of his steadfast love. If steadfast love is committed, unending, always doing what's right for the other type of love, then steadfast love confronts when you see someone running towards a cliff. Steadfast love means that we need to confront sin. Now, don't take that as like a free pass to run around calling everyone sinners and shaking your finger at them, telling them that they need to stop. God's perfect, steadfast love confronts sin in a perfect, loving way. So before we ever confront someone about their sin, we need to first do the heart work of asking, why am I confronting you about your sin? You may have people that you absolutely love, that are, that are steeped in sin. Before you confront them about their sin, ask yourself, why am I confronting you about your sin? For example, let's say one of my kids is screaming in church, being disruptive, expressing anger, sinning in his anger. Now, I could be confronting him about that sin because I love him and I care for him. Or I could be confronting him about that sin because I'm the pastor. The pastor has to have perfect kids. You're embarrassing me, so you better shut up, kid. Do you see the difference? Man, we can confront someone about their sin, and it's really all about me. And it's really in a sinful way. And all that does is build rebellion in someone else's heart. So steadfast love confronts sin, disputes with sin, but you better do it. We're called to confront sin, but you better do it out of, with a heart out of love, not a heart out of legalism and concern for yourself. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So the heavens are above the earth and the east is from the west. Those are the furthest distance known in that day. So what he's doing is showing that this is like the greatest and most unfathomable distance you could ever think of. And what was he comparing these to? His steadfast love to us. His steadfast love is so great that we can't even fully comprehend it. And not only that is his steadfast love that great, but also that's how he has removed our transgressions, our evil acts, away from us. We need to grab a hold of this. Because too often we let our sin become how we define ourselves. Are you still beating yourself up over that sin that you committed years and years ago? Maybe it wasn't even that long ago. Maybe it was just last week. And you absolutely hate the fact that you did that again. You swore you were never going to do it again, and yet here you are. Don't let your past sin define who you are and define your relationship with God. He has removed that in an unfathomable amount of distance from you. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is another way to show his love for us, just as a father is compassionate towards his own child. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. He knows your frame. He knows you all the way down to your DNA. He knows the very building blocks of your person. Think about it. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he still loves you with a steadfast 
undying, committed love that will always do what's best for you. He remembers that we are dust. So this introduces the next section, which talks about our frailty. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. It's like that. And we've talked about this this last week. We even talked about it during our devotion here on Wednesday night. We did a prayer and praise, and that is we are all going to die quickly. Our life is over way faster than we could imagine. I remember when my grandma was 90, and she bought bananas, and she told me, Aaron, we don't buy green bananas anymore. And her whole point was, we might be dead before they're ripe, and I want to enjoy these bananas, so I'm not waiting around for a green banana to turn ripe. In her 90s, she understood that human life is over quicker than we can imagine. You could die on your way home today. It's that quick. Your life is short. And yet, how often do we, buy, do we live like we're buying green bananas, waiting around for them to ripen up? Let's not waste our lives. They're quick. But, now this but is a, contra- is a contrast with our frailty but, God, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So it contrasts God's love with our frailty. We are, we are but wind, we are smoke, we are vapor, yet God's love for us lasts forever. It endures on those who fear him. So there is a condition here. And that condition is those who fear him. I believe that God loves every single, the Bible is very clear, that God loves every single person who is created. He knits you together. He knows your DNA. And yet in our rebellion, at some point, God lets us get away and says, okay, I'm done with you. You will be separated from God for eternity unless there is repentance. Unless you come to a point in your life where you say, God, I recognize I have sinned against you. I've shaken my fist. I deserve eternal death. And yet, because you love me, you came and you paid that price on the cross. And for this reason, I put my faith and trust in your works on the cross. And when you do that, you are then considered righteous and holy, and that's when he removes your sins from you so that you no longer have to be defined by your sins. But it starts off with recognizing who he is and who we are. And his righteousness to the children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. I think this is another call to biblical literacy. How can you obey if you don't know? How can you live out Scripture in your life if you're not studying Scripture? Another issue we come to with studying Scripture is sometimes we think like a verse a day is the way, right? If I just read one verse, then that's like going to magically clean me. It's almost mysticism, isn't it? If I just read one verse, then I'll be good for the day. I've put in my time with God, and he's going to do everything to make my life great. So we download the Bible app, and we get the one verse. Now, I don't want to discourage you from doing a verse a day. There's a guy in our congregation. I love what he does. He gets the the verse a day, and then he goes and looks up the, the context, and he'll read the entire chapter. Sometimes he'll read the entire book. Because he got that one verse. Because he doesn't want to read it out of context. The verse a day isn't going to make you pure or holy. God's already made you pure and holy and righteous. But as we 
look at Scripture and try to pull the meaning from it, he matures us in that holiness. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So we are like smoke, we're like grass, but God is eternal and rules over all. The only way we can have true purpose and meaning in this life is to be plugged into the one who is the ruler of it all. So often we look for purpose, we look for meaning in all these peripheral things. The only way that we can have true meaning and true purpose in life is to be focused in on God, is to be connected with God because he is eternal. Everything else is fleeting. No matter how grand you think your purpose is, if it's not serving God, it's really meaningless. Bless the Lord, O you angels. So 20 through 22 is a final call to praise. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. So this is a call to angels to bless the Lord, to praise, to speak excellence of him. Then bless the Lord, all his hosts. Hosts are hordes or multitudes, right? So who are these hordes and multitudes? He answers, his ministers who do his will. Now, we hear this, who do his will, and it leaves a, typically leaves a question in people's mind, which is, what is God's will in my life? And this question kind of plagues me. It plagues me because we, we hear this question often, and it often is a reference to like, does God want me to choose this college or that college? What's God's will in my life? Or maybe it's, what's God's will in my life? Should I marry this person or that person? What's God's will in my life? Is it that I live in this town or this town? And I don't think that's what God's will is. God's will is that we read Scripture, we pull the meaning and understand it, and then apply it to our lives. That's what this reference is to. It's not about the big decisions. It's about all of the small things in life. Are you reading Scripture, applying it to your life, and then living it out? That's the person that does God's will. That is so much more important than which college will you attend. Because whether you attend some horrible secular college or some private school, or maybe you don't attend college at all, you can live out God's will in your life by reading Scripture and applying it. And as you read Scripture and you apply it to your life, God begins to direct you and take care of the bigger decisions. But it all starts with reading Scripture and applying it to your life. And then he guides you through the college, through the person to marry, through the city to live in. But if you're not starting off with reading Scripture and applying it, then even if you're picking the right college, you're going to mess it up. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. This is a simple call for all of creation to praise him. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the last call for inner self, to praise God. So how do you know if you really believe what you say you believe? It's through your actions. But so many of us are plagued with this. I want to believe, help my unbelief. How do we get to a point where we're really living out what we say we believe? I believe Psalm 103 gives us two answers. Number one is to praise God. 
Praise Him in the highs and praise Him in the lows. For your inner dialogue to be constantly speaking words of excellence about who God is and speaking truth about who God is. And the next part is biblical literacy. Every single one of us getting into the Bible, reading it, diving into it to understand it and apply it to our lives. And as we do that, then we can fully understand and believe what we say we really believe. And we'll see the evidence in the way we live it out. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word, that it is trustworthy, that it is life-transforming. And we thank you that you are trustworthy as well, that we can trust you in the midst of the crisis and in all of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a church that is biblically literate, that we as a church and as individuals would desire your word, that we would dive into your word to understand it, not to read our meaning into it, to pull your meaning from it. And then as we understand the meaning, we would apply it to our lives, all to your glory and our good. In your name we pray, amen.